Hello and welcome to Life's Too Short. This is Jason Medina. And Lisa Hurley. And we have another social distancing episode for all of you. Lisa, it's been like eight weeks. I know. It's so crazy. It's so nice to see you, even if it's virtual. It is nice to see you. This new normal has become almost normal to where you like you wake up, have a cup of coffee, go online and stay on the computer for eight or nine hours and then hopefully shut it down and hang out with the fam. It's weird not to have this idea of going to a location to do something. That's a huge paradigm shift, at least for me. It is amazing how um, you adjust, It is right? I mean, I, I think eight weeks ago, thinking, could we, you know, work in the present workflow that we were doing for another two months almost seemed unfathomable. And then here we are, it's become now the sort of the new norm. But I think things are starting to ease up a little bit. It's so interesting. My first two phone calls of, of normalcy was from my dentist trying to reschedule a dentist appointment and then trying to reschedule my colonoscopy. So those were not the two like <laughs> phone calls that I would really be looking forward to, but it actually made me happy that there is a little sense of, of you know, going back to, to where we were um, slowly. But um, was that too much information? No, no, I think all of that should stay in the podcast. Thank you for offering that and for your honesty. Prevention's important. Yes, yes, it is. I was just, I was sitting or standing in the nursery, not sitting. And, you know, everybody is so conscientious of keeping a six foot distance with each other. It just hit me. Shaking someone's hand is going to feel so intimate or hugging someone is going to feel so intimate and almost foreign because we've created this this safe bubble around each other that it's going to, that's going to take some adjustment, I think. Yeah, social etiquette is going to be so different. There's going to be maybe a new learning curve for for all that. Um, it, w- it will be interesting. One of the things we have watched on as a family is there's a helicopter pilot out of Long Beach, so really outside of Los Angeles, and he's been flying over freeways and theme parks during this time and showing how empty even LA looks right now on a six o'clock rush hour on a Friday night and how almost every freeway you can go 80 miles an hour. In fact, I think some people are going 80 miles an hour right now with how open the freeways are. It's just unreal. A bit surreal for sure. I see you're drinking coffee. Did you wake up at the crack of dawn and, uh, grind your beans and already went for your five mile run. I I went for my run and then I had my coffee. So I did not grind the beans first thing in the morning, got up, enjoyed the sunrise. It's, I love this time of the year when the sun creeps up sooner and sooner. So we're close to like five o'clock at sunrise now. And by the time I get out to go for my run, the the sun's already up, but nobody's out yet. It's a beautiful time to be awake and bend. Definitely. How about yeah, you? This you're, is my favorite time of year. You're drinking coffee, I see as well. I assume it's coffee. It is coffee. Yeah, I actually made myself a um, a latte. I have one of those Nespresso. Look at you machines. I know, so fancy. I don't do it all the time. I did it for the podcast. I try to convince Leanne that we should get one, and then. Like, you know, try to do the math and say, you know, look how much we'll save after so many cups, but it hasn't worked yet. Keep trying. I will. Well, we're excited to have a, a guest return with us. Yes, I know. Very excited. Eric Alexander, the CEO of Partners in Care, has come back for round two. I guess the first round in the ring and he didn't feel too beat up. So here he is for round two. I feel like Thomas Friedman. 
You're going to have to explain. Well, I feel like you're you're looking for for in, incredible wisdom, <laughs> and I'm hoping I can pull this out, but I'm not sure. He's he's a, he's a fa- he's a favorite columnist of mine. Well, thanks, Eric. Yeah, for coming back, and um, I think we learned so much about your history and your work experience, but um, I felt like there was so much that we didn't really get to touch on. Um, And so we thought we'd have you back today to talk a little bit more about maybe the, the future of healthcare, the future of our organization. And maybe we'll just kind of start with just sort of some delineation of our organization in terms of, well, where we started, we were part of a merger how many years ago again was that, this Eric? This was uh, 2009 when we fully merged. Yes. So it's been whatever that is. Do you want to talk a little bit about sure. what that means, what that merger entailed? Of course. I, I think um, Partners in Care has a has a history that goes back, obviously, way before that. And if I, if I could just deviate just a little bit. We've had uh, um, about five different names as organizations, but hospice care in this region and in this community really began in 1979. Uh, it came here uh, because some nurses at St. Charles and some people in the community had watched the development of the contemporary hospice that came over from uh, England in the early 70s and started in Connecticut with the first hospice in Connecticut. And it was built around the concept of a holistic way of taking care of people at the ends of their lives, amassing around them the the resources that they needed that were more than just clinical, more than medical. They were social. They were spiritual. Dame Cecily Saunders, the founder of early hospice, put those things together and really helped the British medical world uh, understand that how they wanted to treat the chronically ill and, and the terminal patients in a new way. And so that came here, and it spread across the United States and arrived in Bend, Oregon in 1979. A group of nurses were volunteering to take care of patients who were, who were dying. And they called themselves Friends of Hospice. They just began that, and they did that as as a team of volunteers for a number of years. And that is the genesis of how hospice care started in this region. Um, it, it developed um, quickly. Friends of Hospice morphed into a essentially a, a full-fledged or, not-for-profit organization, called themselves Hospice of Bend, uh, then Hospice of Bend Lapine later. And even later into the 2000s, they called themselves um, Hospice Center. And, and were the site of uh, the community-based new hospice house concept. And so that's how we got sort of to the end of the 20th, 20, 20th century and, and began hospice care. And in 2008, it, I looked around and, and looked at the region and really using my experiences at St. Charles and when understanding that healthcare is is moving to being regional rather than than town centered healthcare saw that at that some point uh, hospice care needed to make that jump to being regional in in scope than simply a a one town uh, entity and so um 
began a conversation with the second largest hospice organization, Central Oregon Home Health and Hospice. And we were, we were doing pretty much similar things as two organizations. Central Oregon Home Health and Hospice was, a, was a, an interesting and fascinating and vibrant organization that had home health care and had created a hospice arm. And so in looking at that, it just made sense to say these two entities they really needed to to leverage their their strengths. They needed to be together. They needed to combine strengths and their wisdom, and we did. So, the long story short, we sort of courted for a year, two thousand eight. The boards um, agreed that we should come together, and in two thousand nine, we began. We saw our first patient in January first, two thousand nine, as partners in care. Everybody, when you when you create something new especially in business or in organizations, it's, you know, it's always a, a, an issue whose name do you keep? We thought it was best and smartest to create a new name. We were with these creative people. We were in this, in this big room and they had these names pasted all over the wall, things we could be called. They all sounded like deodorants and they, <laughs> they just didn't fit. Secret was not one of the names, was it? Secret hospice. Secret it doesn't, hospice. It doesn't no. really work. No. Strong enough for a man. <laughs> nice enough for a woman. Right. <laughs> At any rate, uh, one, of our, one of our team members, No Shrinking Violet, said, why don't we just call it, we're partners. Why don't we call it Partners in Care? And it just sounded so plebeian. We said, that makes so much sense. And so we're partners with each other. We are partners with the family and the patient. We are partners with their providers, their, their doctors. And we're partners with this community and this region. Eric, we pride ourselves on being a not-for-profit hospice, and for our listeners who may not be aware, I would say 50 to 60% of all hospices are for-profit. What value to you and to our organization is it to be a not-for-profit, and how do we create sustainability being a not-for-profit when healthcare, as we know, is it's about cost and it's about efficiencies well, I think I think any organization is going to have to be efficient and effective um, in a marketplace, and we are clearly in a marketplace. We are clearly also in a marketplace in which there is more than one provider. There are four providers of of end of life care in in this region. One of them is that uh, their tax status is as a for profit. Three of us uh, are not for profit, which means because we are a social service agency. Federal government and state governments uh, give us immunity from paying business taxes. And that, that, is, that is given to us for the, for the privilege of providing services to the public. And so we are expected to have a higher standard for how we operate because we have the advantage of not having to accommodate uh, the expense of taxes in our business practices. And so there's some things that go along with that. One of the, one of the challenges that, that has happened in, uh, in the end-of-life care world, and particularly in hospice, is that not-for-profit organizations used to be um, the norm in all healthcare. And uh, hospices, some 75 to 80 percent of the early hospices were not-for-profit. That has flipped today, and 60, 60 to 70 percent of 
uh, the hospice organizations and probably an equal number of home health organizations are organized as a uh, for-profit shareholder-owned entity. The service should be and is the same. Um, you're taking care of people at end of life. We, if you're if you're paid by Medicare, uh, Medicare has the uh, rules of how we uh, do our business. It applies to both of us equally. So. We try uh, in doing what we do, we really make an effort and an int- have an intention to making sure that the services we provide, the things that you don't often think about, like social workers, nurses, aides, therapists, and a number of other ser- services that we pay for that are there for patients who are on hospice or on home health or on palliative care. And being a shareholder owned organization, the motivation is a little different in, um, at the end of the day. Uh, you want to make sure that as a for-profit entity, you return value to the shareholders, which means that you return profit to them. So those two different motivations are the difference in how people, in how organizations who are organized in these two ways and how they operate their business and in how they pay their people, perhaps, how they add services that may be unprofitable services to make sure that patients and families get uh, what they need at end end of life. That is the motivating factor on the not-for-profit side, and it should be the motivating factor, and probably is in a lot of cases, or even in most cases, perhaps, on the uh, for-profit side. But the structure of of that ultimately is different. We're proud to be a not-for-profit, mission-oriented organization. We've drive to, if we have money left over at the end of the year, that becomes operating reserves for us. And frankly, we're using our reserves to pay for about half of the total cost of the new hospice expansion. And we're going to be asking the community to help with that as well. There's a lot of um, misconceptions in hospice that I hear out in the community. One, I think you, you cleared up that I think oftentimes people think that there's Hospice is just one entity, but clearly it's a Medicare benefit that is um, that different providers within a community can provide. Um, but the other thing that I sometimes hear too, um, and I think folks not really understanding truly what hospice is, that hospice is a um, philosophy of care and not necessarily a place. So we serve our hospice patients in their homes, wherever their homes may be. That could be a private home, assisted living facility, memory care, etc. But you kind of touched on uh, a little bit of when hospice actually is a place. Um, And I wanted you just to expand a little bit about what is hospice house compared to in-home hospice and what is hospice house used for? We are a mobile workforce, and you're right. I'm glad you brought that up. We we serve people in their homes. Uh, we go to them. Uh, they Their homes may be in residential neighborhoods or, as is the case, and certainly in a lot of ways, in a lot of cases in Bend, uh, there are assisted living units, nursing homes, memory units, uh, homes away from home. But that becomes their home. So those are places that we see our patients um, about 85% of our patients. When a hospice house was posed in Bend, the idea of having a place when people could not be cared for in their homes, uh, perhaps the, uh, the, the acuity of the, the illness was such that they couldn't just be cared for on, in episodes in their homes, and they needed 24-hour care. That concept 
yielded the the uh, new phenomenon of of inpatient units, and we call ours hospice house. That house and that 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 facility is really a an inpatient hospital, and so it's dedicated to hospice care. It's dedicated twenty four hours a day with uh, physician and nursing care to make sure that the patient is comfortable. And as much as anything else, they're built to be like a home, uh, to look like their home, to look like something that is comfortable, homey, safe, and pleasant. And the staff, you know, the staff does that kind of leverages the care in the same way that the, the setting is. And I think so the the idea that a person who may be in pain uh, that needs that pain uh, handled and dealt with um, that's the place that that they're going to go more often than not and it, it's not because somebody can't take care of them at home it's really because what's best for the patient is to have that constant 24-hour care as long as they are there um, it is uh, it's available to our region it's available to it isn't just a bend facility. It's a Med- Madras, Redmond, Prineville, and and other places. And it's used like that. Eric, it, isn't there only, is it three hospice houses now in the whole state of Oregon? It is unique. There are only three of these dedicated inpatient units in the state of Oregon, uh, two in the valley and one here. Uh, we are the only one east of the Cascade Mountains in Oregon. So it is it is truly um, a special place. So it's a unique unique um, asset to this community, and it's one of the reasons why um, we're expanding it now. With the explosive growth of this region, and the growth of St. Charles, uh, and the growth of our, our our healthcare community in general, the number of people who are needing that acute care are growing and our ability to balance respite care, which is short-term care with general care, which is long-term care. It's just got worse and worse and and more difficult to assure people that they can get that care when they need it. So that's why we're expanding it uh, 12 beds. Um, We'll be announcing that soon, probably within the next month. But it's really important for uh, for the people to know that this is something that we're building for the future. We're in an explosive growth pattern. At the same time, we're in this COVID pattern. I don't know what's going to happen when those two things meet. But I don't think once we settle this and once we work our through uh, this pandemic, I don't think the beauty of Central Oregon is going to stop attracting people. The staff is so amazing. And um, just the, the atmosphere there is such a calming sanctuary. Um, I love our volunteers that are there playing music, Um, but we do live in Central Oregon. So one of the other things that I think is so fabulous about the house is patients and families can bring their pets. And um, I think there was a horse there one time, not in the room, of course, (laughs) outside. I want to be clear. For, for our listeners, <laughs> we've had a horse. I saw a goat outside one day. It was one of our patients' goats and dogs. And I just love that. I just, I, I know that they bend over backwards just to provide any comfort to, to the, the folks they're serving there. And they certainly do that very well. Eric, 
in the preliminary planning and stages leading up to building and construction, you had a term referring to this evolving campus as an urban oasis. I believe that was the term that you had used. Talk a bit more about what does it mean to be an urban oasis and artistically, architecturally, environmentally, what does that mean for you? The sense of place is incredibly powerful for all of us. Um, We can all remember times in, in growing up and in our homes when it was warm and comfortable when um, our parents were there, when life was was easy and nice and soft and sweet. And that sense of place can be actually is what we're trying to create when we build this new hospice house and expanded beyond that in how we use the land, the amount of land, small though it is, uh, that we have that will hold this hospice house and places for our team to work. And so the idea in working with our designers, trying to give them a sense of what we wanted to achieve was we would like to have the four acres that that we have sort of pieced together here. When people step on this place, everything about it should generate a feeling of safety, a feeling of calmness, a feeling of order and beauty. And so uh, we actually, when we... uh, selected two architects that did a joint proposal. One was the group that uh, built the hospice houses in Spokane, two 12-bed units, and the other was one who had designed iconic buildings here in, in Bend. And so our, our charge to them was this needs to emit a feeling of confidence and safety and welcome as well as calmness for the people that come on to this place and they bring their loved ones to hospice house and the staff who does the work here. Uh, these people are important. Um, they come here and stay here because this work is rewarding and noble. And uh, we want to, to make sure that we have a place of beauty. We've been designing the outside of the campus at the same time we're designing the building itself and the internal part of the building so that the outside that people look on from the inside of Hospice House or in the administration part of it will be welcoming and and uh, beautiful and calming as well. We've actually done that, uh, done the design work of inside and outside at the same time. And the effect that we want to create is that we're uh, an oasis in the middle of the health district. Uh, that's really for the, the patient and the family and the community's benefit, our neighbors' benefit too. What about the future of healthcare? And I know that's um, probably a hard thing to know or or to uh, make predictions about. But I'm also thinking with the recent pandemic, already healthcare has changed a bit with a lot more access to telehealth and telemedicine. Where do you see, just generally speaking, healthcare going in the next five to ten years? Mm-hmm. Well, there'll be no there'll be no shortage of people needing healthcare. The pace of life and and the, the curvature of life is predictable, and um, I think Central Oregon has uh, always been. Uh, I've always felt that it was the way it is situated in the state of Oregon. Its geography that is a series of small small beautiful towns on the high desert, nestled up against the mountains. 
all that has made it a what I have always called a laboratory for how to do healthcare right and how to do it well. And so it's been a gift, I think, that we've been given. We exist sort of alone in a vast expanse, and that has made us have to rely on each other and be creative and work together. And it's also uh, has, for one reason or another, uh, meant that the, the kinds of situations that occur in, in metropolitan areas where you have multiple providers maybe overlapping or even duplicating each other, that has not happened here. And I think it's given us a chance to, in a variety of ways over the last 30 years or maybe 40 years, where we can do things creatively and do them collaboratively, and more often than not, have done them collaboratively so that we're not trying to screen one entity out or, or give somebody a shoulder or an elbow to get what we want out of our entity. That won't last forever, but we still have, I think, that possibility as organizations in healthcare to work together to make sure that we do the best we can and be effective and efficient with the resources we have. That is why uh, when Partners in Care started in 2009, we began to build an, uh, a coordinated network uh, of hospice, home health, transitions, lately palliative care, grief support, and all of the pieces of end-of-life care that make sense and are needed in, in end-of-life. And we, we really felt that putting that all under one organization, one philosophy, uh, one approach, uh, one structure, would enable us to connect with the larger acute care in a way that, that allowed us to serve the entire region. And it's not finished. It's not perfect. It has gaps, but it's unique. Nobody else has done that to date. Uh, I know some people are considering it, but um, we have done it and we've learned a lot. We've made some, some bloopers, but I think we're continuing to learn. And that's going to be for us to continue to refine this effort of keeping it integrated because all these services really are built to serve people who are in the 70 plus age range of life and in the last phase of their lives. And all those things need to be a continuum of care. In addition to, we are a, a great center for community education in aging, in how you effectively live, um, the, live your years out as effectively as you can and as fully and as joyfully as you possibly can. You know, you mentioned telehealth. I think we're going to learn some things in this COVID epic for us. I'm doing way more of this than I like. Um, but, <laughs> and I'm realizing that it is, it is, it is going to be very, very prominent. And I've been through and, and understood in the acute, acute care, the early promises of telehealth and telemedicine. And there are some amazing things that, that telemedicine does today that most people aren't aware of. You can do robotic surgery on, a, on an injured soldier in Afghanistan from Washington, D.C. And it, it's just there are 25,000 veterans in this region. The greatest generation is, is about past. Um, the Korea veterans generation is aging, too. The Vietnam era veteran, veteran is encountering his, their last phases of life, too. 
that was a that was a conflict that was unresolved. And every veteran who who was there uh, carries with them a, a lack of resolution um, of, of that conflict in some way, shape or form. And as people approach the end of life, we need to be mindful of our veterans and, and what is inside them that needs resolution as they go forward to the last phases of their lives. So um, we're, we're going to be continuing to be better and better at caring for um, our veteran population. So there's a lot, of, a lot of exciting things in addition to the bricks and mortar things that we're doing. Well, Eric, we thank you for joining us once again. It has been delightful. Thank you for your time to fill us in on what's been going on and what we're looking forward to. And thank you for your leadership. Thanks for um, naming us partners in care and not right guard hospice. You know, I was actually thinking Old Spice, like... (gasps) That's like branding gone wrong. You know, it's kind of like dress barn. Who would think of these things? <laughs> yeah, I think partners in care is a much better fit and, and uh, describes us well. <laughs> yes. Well, so, thank you for thank the opportunity. You. It's been great to Absolutely. be with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Eric. Well, this is Jason Medina. And Lisa Hurley. And you've been listening to Life's Too Short. <laughs>